Now then, let us pick up with Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 27 and look at verses 27 through 31. Hear now the word of God Almighty. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law of God through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask for your help that you, O God, would send down your Holy Spirit to attend to your word, to make it intelligible to us, to make it, Lord, believable to us. And, Lord, that you would make us trusting of your word, that you would help it to bear fruit in our hearts. We pray, O God, that you would help me in the preaching of your word, Lord, that it would edify your saints, that it would give flight to your enemies, And that, O God, it would bless and honor you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we learned last time in chapter 3, verse 26, that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This means that God forgives and accepts as righteous in his sight those sinners who believe in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation for our redemption. So sinners are justified by faith in the sinless Redeemer. Here in verses 27 through 21, we see drawn out three implications of this justification by faith. So three implications or inferences, three things that follow from Justification by faith. Number one, it excludes boasting. Number two, it includes all men. And number three, it establishes the law. So we look first then at justification by faith excluding all boasting. And we see this in verses 27 and 28. We begin with the question, where is boasting? Of course, you know this is a question that the apostle asks in order to answer it. Where is boasting? The word boasting means to glorify, exalt, or praise. It can even be translated as rejoice. Here it refers to self-glorification, self-exaltation, self-congratulation. So the answer naturally follows. This boasting is excluded. The verb for being excluded or being left off is literally to put outside. It's like if you go to someone's house and they have a, a mangy dog that jumps on your lap all the time and they take the dog and put it outside because there's no place for him. This is what is done with boasting. The gospel of justification by faith literally puts outside. There is no room left, no place, no welcome for boasting. Especially in the sight of God, with respect to a sinner standing in his sight, there is 
no place for boasting. And this prompts another question. By what law? So boasting is excluded, but by what law? Of works? No, but the law of faith. Now this seems somewhat surprising to us, I think, in that most of chapters 2 and 3 were showing us that the law leaves no room for boasting. We are all guilty before the law. We've broken God's law, and the law has us condemned dead to rights. So I would have anticipated that the law of works would leave us no room for boasting. However, the point here is slightly different. The word law, in this instance, refers to a rule or principle. By what principle do you say that boasting is excluded? By what rule, by what system can you say that boasting is excluded? And the apostle says, by the principle or the law of faith. Now, we can illustrate this point by considering the two covenants that God made with mankind. And I'm going to read a portion from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, section 2. It says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and to him, in him his posterity, that's us, upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. So this here is describing a principle, a rule. By what means could Adam have life? By means of perfect and perpetual personal obedience. So then that's the law of faith, as the apostle is describing it in this passage. The next section in our Westminster Confession speaks of a second covenant. And it says this, Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant. Let's just stop there for a second. Man by his fall is not even capable of attaining life by that covenant. The Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. Requiring faith in Christ is the second law that was referenced, the second principle. This is the law of faith. So what the apostle is saying here is, what law excludes boasting? The law of works, such as what was given to Adam? More than that, beloved, the law of faith, the law which the Lord instituted with the first gospel, excludes boasting. So these two covenants illustrate those two laws. The first is the law of works. The second is the law of faith, or what we call the gospel. Thus, we see that justification by faith actually excludes all boasting. Everyone who is or will be justified is, number one, already incapable of performing the works that would earn him life. And he is, number two, justified on the basis of Jesus Christ, which he receives by faith. Now, in the morning, we have been studying Adam and Eve and the fall of man in the first gospel and living out the gospel in fallen condition. And we can illustrate this by Adam in the 
book of Genesis in chapter 3. Suppose that we find Adam having disobeyed the Lord and broken that covenant by which he was promised life. He did not give personal obedience to the Lord. And so here is Adam dressed in the animal skins, seeing the blood of that lamb which was slaughtered for him and receiving God's forgiveness when he believes the promise. Now I want you to imagine Adam at this point saying, you know, God is really lucky to have me. I've done pretty well here. I, I'm, I should congratulate myself. Eve, have you thought lately about how righteous I am and how I've earned this place? How silly that would be for Adam, wouldn't it? Having, standing there looking at the slain body of the animal by which the Lord clothed him, having received the Lord's forgiveness for breaking his law, having received these blessings by faith in a redeemer, it would be silly for Adam to boast. I want you to think about this. At this point, Adam has only broken one law. He's broken one law. You and me not only are guilty of breaking that law along with Adam, but how many laws have we broken to find ourselves on the wrong side of God's justice? So, if it would be silly for Adam to boast in his justification, how much more would it be silly for anyone since him to boast in his justification? Now, since boasting is excluded then by the law of faith, which is the gospel, right? The promise of life and forgiveness on the condition of believing in God's Redeemer. Since that boasting is excluded, and boasting implies that there was the performance of some attainment or some sort of earning or some sort of good thing, it has to follow that we can be certain that a man is justified by faith alone. Verse 28 says, Therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, some might try to reason that he is justified by faith, mostly. But by reason of some personal effort, or accomplishment, or lineage, or performance of something, some merit in himself, no matter how small, has contributed to his justification. Perhaps for one reason or another, God was more right in justifying me than some other man. No, says the apostle, a man is justified without the deeds of the law. Such deeds or positions or favor, supposing that they even existed in you, are not even considered in God's justification of sinners. It's not even in the balance. It's not even reckoned. This is where Martin Luther in his translation of this verse, rendered it, allein durch dann glauben, by faith alone. His opponents, his critics, were quick to jump on him and say that he did not render a very literal translation of the passage. And perhaps that's correct. He maybe went a little NIV on the passage. <laughs> but his doctrine, drawn from the passage, is exactly correct. 
If we are justified by faith without the deeds of the law, we are justified by faith alone. There are only two possible ways for a man to be justified. The first was lost when man fell. The second is by faith in God's Redeemer. Therefore, it follows by necessity that we are indeed justified by faith alone. Matthew Henry reasons thus. If we were saved by our own works, we might put the crown upon our own heads. But the law of faith, that is, the way of justification by faith, doth forever exclude boasting. For faith is a depending, self-emptying, self-denying grace. And it casts every crown before the throne. Therefore, it is most for God's glory that thus we should be justified. Do you see that this is one of the results then of justification by faith is that God and God alone gets the glory for counting sinners righteous in his sight. Before we move on from this, we should consider how this ought to humble us. How we ought to, as Henry says, be self-emptying, self-denying, casting our crowns before the Lord. Even now we ought to consider, in spite of what we have done, how merciful God has been to us. And you must understand that no one can come to God and be justified who has not or will not humble himself before God. Consider this when you are not only dealing with yourself, what God is looking for is a broken and a contrite heart, looking for you to humble yourself in order that he can heal you with his grace. But also consider this with those outside of the church. If they will not lower themselves, if they will not humble themselves, and acknowledge their utter need and dependency for God to forgive them, then God cannot justify them. Because justification is by faith alone, and that means that the man who is justified must be empty of everything else. So then, justification by faith excludes all boasting. Think of, I want you to even think again of Adam and, and him you know, laughably boasting at that moment. And you understand that the blood by which Adam was forgiven, of course, we we see it in the lamb there, but that was pointing to the lamb, the lamb of God. Adam received the benefits of that by faith, but the worth, the merit, the grounds of Adam's forgiveness was that blood. It was someone else's sacrifice. So too it is with us. The merit, the worth, the grounds of our being forgiven is Christ's sacrifice. And even our faith is merely receiving that sacrifice. Therefore, we have no room for boasting. If we are going to boast at any point in this, it ought to be in the Lord who laid down his life for our sins. Secondly, justification by faith includes all men. Perhaps I ought to say extends to all men. When we say that justification, this is verses 29 and 30. When we say that it includes all men, we mean all men who believe. It is not the case that those who don't believe will be justified. 
Because you have to understand the whole world is under the condemnation of God. The whole world has broken his law. They are all guilty. Everybody deserves hell. And only those who believe will receive the benefits of Christ's atonement. So justification by faith indeed includes all men in this sense. All men who believe will receive justification. For believing in Christ, the Redeemer, is the only condition that God puts forward for justification. One either has faith in Christ or he does not. That's that's it. And one then is either justified or he is not. I want you to think about this. Mary Magdalene was equally justified as Mary, the mother of Christ. Regardless of what led up to that moment, do you understand that when justification is something that actually does not admit to degrees, there is either justified or not justified. Now, in, in our personal faith, there may be strength and weakness. In our growth in grace, there may be some differences. But in God's declaration of justification, every Christian is equally justified so that the worst sinner in history is as justified as the greatest saint who has ever lived. Justification, then, is equal. And this is because God justifies sinners only upon the condition of believing in his Son. Now, in Romans, this means that God justifies not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And this brings us to another question here in verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And the answer, of course, is yes, of the Gentiles also. And a conclusion follows from this in verse 30. Seeing it is one God, or perhaps even better, there is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Of course, we, like the Jews, understand this, that there is only one God. There is not a a God here in Pennsylvania and a God in Africa and a God in Asia. There is one God, and he made all men. And he owns the whole world. All souls are his. But we may, like the Jews, be tempted to forget what that entails. How is he the God of the world? Now the Lord told Abraham, you remember this in Genesis 22, he said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Part of the gospel promise to Abraham was that someday all of the nations, nations and Gentiles are synonyms, right? And one day... All the nations will be blessed. See, God being a God to someone is more than just being their creator. It means that God is gracious towards them. God is merciful towards them. But you know that God did not begin to be the God of the world in Abraham's day. Thus Paul said this when he spoke in Athens. He said, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Hear why. So that they should seek the Lord 
and in hope that they might grope for him and find him. God had a desire for all the nations to come to him. It is like what the Lord said to Jonah about Nineveh. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? And much cattle? (laughs) That always puzzles me. And much cattle. God has mercy even on the cattle of Nineveh. How much more the 120,000 persons? He's the God of them too. John Calvin said it this way. Since God designs to make all nations of the earth partakers of his mercy, then salvation and righteousness, which is necessary for salvation, must be extended to all. And that is the preaching of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In Isaiah chapter 63, we are given a prayer of the Edomites who would be considered Gentiles to the Jews. And they say this, Doubtless you are our father. This is Isaiah 63 verse 16. Doubtless you, God, are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. Edomites, who believe in the Lord Jesus, are justified. Their sins are forgiven, and they stand righteous before God. This is why the Lord Jesus, in his great commission, said to go into all nations. Because God has desires to save men from all nations. And in order to do that, then, his gospel of justification by faith must be extended to them. All of this is to say that God will justify whoever believes, whether of Israel or of the nations. There is one plan of salvation. It is not the case that men in strange lands will be saved by faithfully worshiping some false god. It's not the case that men will be saved apart from knowledge of Jesus Christ. No, they can only be saved by faith in the Lord's Redeemer. Now the Apostle says that the circumcised will be saved by faith and the uncircumcised will be saved through faith. This is interesting. Is there a difference? John Calvin, after wrestling with this passage, said this. If you can tell me the difference between by and through, then you will know the difference between the justifications of Jews and Gentiles. And it, it's true. If you try to think, think it through, in terms of a means, right, an instrument, it's really hard to distinguish between by and through. I came in here by the door. I came in here through the door. And it's very hard to distinguish between those. So I think Kelvin is on the right track there. It's very, there really is, that's really the point here. There is no distinction, right? Now, if we insist upon a distinction, this is one I think would be the safest route. It is that the Jews who were the inheritors of the law and the covenants and had the promise and they grew up and were nourished in grace, they're saved by faith. The Gentiles, however, who had been outside of the covenants and were strangers to God and his people and did not have a God in this world, they are now being saved through faith. There's a, a new coming of the preaching of the word of God to them. Um, and so it was something that came to them 
foreign, from the outside, unknown from before. But in either case, the point is, is that all men, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether in America or anywhere on the world or on the moon, if they will be saved, it will be by faith in Jesus Christ. This brings us to our third point. Justification by faith establishes the law. Here again is a question in verse 31. Do we then make void or abolish the law through faith? It is clear here now that the word law is being used in a different sense than it was above. The law here refers not to that principle or rule of either works or faith. It refers to that divine law we've talked about that is revealed to mankind. Particularly in this case, the law that was revealed to Israel. You can take law here as not only, say, the Ten Commandments or the books of Moses, but really the Old Testament. It's as if they are saying, if God forgives sins and counts as righteous anyone who believes in Jesus, who lately was crucified and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, doesn't that make the law, indeed the whole Old Testament, kind of pointless? Do we need to get rid of the Old Testament? Do we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? Well, that's the force of the question, but what is the answer? God forbid. May it never be, absolutely not. Yea, we establish the law. This is saying that faith and justification by faith, far from abolishing the law, actually establishes the law. So it does not tear it down. It actually makes it stand. How so? Well, here are three ways. Number one, justification by faith, and indeed faith itself, confirms the truth of all of the teachings in the law. Think of this. All of the promises from Genesis 3.15 to Malachi 4.6, all of those promises are confirmed in the gospel. All of the promises, all of the types, all of the shadows, the sacrifices, the ordinances, the ceremonies, all of them literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Confirmed to be true. But more than that, they are all confirmed and fulfilled every time a sinner believes in Jesus Christ. You see, God's promise to save mankind by the seed of the woman is reconfirmed, reestablished every time a sinner repents and believes the gospel. So, the faith, far from abolishing the law, actually confirms the truth of everything taught in the law. More than that, faith actually upholds the righteousness of the law. We read back in chapter 3, verse 20, For by the law comes knowledge of sin. Those who are born under law, excuse me, Jesus Christ was born under the law. He obeyed the law and suffered according to the law for lawbreakers. And he did this as a demonstration, we read, of God's righteousness. So the law actually upholds, excuse me, faith actually upholds the law, the righteous standard of it. Jesus Christ, being the perfect law keeper, shows us what righteousness looks like, what it demands, and indeed that we lack what it demands. Third, the 
doctrine, the truth of justification by faith, maintains the proper uses of the law. Remember that in the covenant of grace, right, starting in Genesis chapter 3, immediately after man broke that first covenant, the law was given for three reasons. Number one, to restrain sin. Do you know that the law, sometimes, whether a person loves it or not, serves as an external restraint against sin? And we see this. I can show you this by the, by the opposite. Less than a decade ago, our nation, in terms of its civil laws, in the, in the federal government and in the states, began re, re, removing the restrictions against gay marriage. Now I want you to consider that gay, uh, homosexuality, one in every five students in our public schools in this nation are identifying as, as gay. Why? The restraint of the law was removed. In fact, at less than a decade ago, we could not, we, we could not conceive of two homosexuals marrying one another in a public ceremony that had to be recognized by law. Today, you can go to a public library and see a hairy pervert dressed up in woman's clothing dancing for kindergartners. The restraint of the law was taken away and sin came in as a flood. So that's one reason that the law exists, is to restrain sin. And that works whether a person is a believer or an unbeliever. Just the, the mere fact of the law. It can't change hearts. It, it doesn't restrain all sin. It doesn't make men obey the law from their hearts. But it does put external pressure. And it does promise rewards for good and promise punishments for evil. And that is one of the ways that God restrains evil from breaking forth in a society. And while I am on that, I want to say... If we see this in the civil realm, we see civil governments relaxing laws pertaining to immorality. And we see that breaking forth then in more and more evil. What do you suppose happens when churches do this? What do you suppose will be the case when you have homosexual ministers and elders and deacons? What, will become, what do you think that will say to our children in our Sunday school classes? What will be the external restraint of that sin? They will be getting it not only in the public realm, but they will also be getting it in their churches. And what hope will there be for them then? Now, a second use of the law from God is to reveal to us our unrighteousness. And this is related to what we saw in chapter 3, verse 20. By the law comes knowledge of sin. When I see the law and its demand, I see the commandment and I see its demands, I recognize my unrighteousness, my guilt before God. I've broken the law. And it shows us our need for forgiveness. And it leads us to Jesus Christ, in whom is found perfect righteousness and through whom we, by faith, can receive the righteousness of God. So then the law reveals righteousness, and faith, you see, serves this, doesn't it? Believing the law, and believing its promises, and believing in the one who fulfilled it, brings to us 
the forgiveness of sins and righteous standing before God. Now, there is a third use of the law we call a rule of life. The law of God reveals to us God's will, what he likes and dislikes, what he wants us to do with our lives. And it directs us to our duties as creatures. Here, you need to know that it is actually only those who believe that can make use of the law in this way. Because it has to be by faith. And it is only those who are forgiven and accepted as righteous who can use the law in this way. Because we need to have our persons accepted in order for our obedience to be acceptable. So you see, by faith, we and our obedience, such as it is, imperfect, is actually acceptable to God. Just as we receive benefits from Christ for justification when we believe, so also throughout the whole Christian life we continue to receive the benefits of his merit. Therefore, our meager obedience is accepted by God because of Jesus Christ. So by faith, we uphold the law. In fact, by faith, we are enabled to keep the law. It is our faith which actually inclines us to obedience of the law. And by this, we not only discover our sin, our iniquities, but we also, by faith-filled keeping of the law, we increase our love and gratitude for our Savior. We conform ourselves to the pattern he set. We gain assurance for ourselves. We bless our neighbors. We glorify God. We adorn our profession. We can silence our enemies. We obtain promised rewards. All of this we do by faith and by keeping the law. So do we abolish the law by faith? By no means we establish the law. Let us pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the redemption that is found in Christ. Thank you for the justification by faith. Let us, Lord, purge from ourselves any shred of boasting. Let us instead receive what you freely give, what you have done in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant to us, O God, the forgiveness of our sins. Increase our faith. Give us, Lord, a great love for your Son and indeed for your law. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.